Welcome to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. Outside of the bald eagle, there is no more iconic animal in America than the buffalo. The new PBS series by Ken Burns takes an in-depth exploration of the animal's history and its intrinsic and enduring link to Native Americans. It's a tragic story of colonial audacity and malicious intent, but it's also one of resilience and promise, and Native Americans are at the center of a dedicated and hopeful effort to ensure the buffalo's future. We'll talk about the American buffalo right after the news. This is National Native News. I'm Jill Freitas from KMBA in Anchorage, Alaska, filling in for Antonia Gonzalez. The 40th annual statewide Elders and Youth Conference kicked off Sunday at the Denina Center in downtown Anchorage. People from all over Alaska came to town to take part in the four-day event, as well as the Alaska Federation of Natives convention that will take place later this week. This is the third time Joseph Johnson Sr. from Angoon has taken part in the conferences and said it is very important for elders and youth to come together. Get all the young kids and everyone together as a group and then split them up and where they can talk and tell other people what, what's going on in their community, what makes it really interesting. Anne Stepton from Juno escorted five elders to Anchorage. She said the children can be a healing source for the elders. Mostly for me, it is bringing elders into a space where they can find some healing because a lot of our elders have faced a lot of traumas in their life. Um, we have a lot of generational trauma, and I am a huge believer in connecting our youth with our elders, and the youth bring a lot of healing to our elders. Those who attended Monday and Tuesday heard keynote speeches from Elder Dolores Churchill, the last remaining Haida birth speaker in the state, an indigenous land protector and model Kwana Chasing Horse. The USDA is awarding half a million dollars in contracts to four tribal buffalo producers located within South Dakota. The move is part of what the agency hopes will offer more ground bison meat for tribal communities. SDPB's Lee Strubinger has more. Officials with the USDA say they want to change how the agency purchases and delivers bison to local communities. The agency is announcing a pilot program they say will offer more ground bison to communities through the Food Distribution Program on Indian Reservations. It seeks to align purchasing timeframes with how ranchers manage bison herds. Heather Don Thompson is the USDA Director of Tribal Relations and an enrolled member of the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe. She says the program will benefit local producers who want to sell meat to the federal government. It's very challenging to be able to sell to the federal government as a small producer. And South Dakota has lots of small and family producers. And this provides an opportunity for those producers to really participate in the federal procurement process. Thompson says the program will benefit communities near bison herds that receive provisions from federal food initiatives. The USDA awarded contracts to four tribally owned herds and managers in the Cheyenne River, Rosebud, Lower Brule, and Standing Rock Reservations. Jenny Moffat is an undersecretary with the USDA who oversees purchasing. She says bison present a unique challenge when it comes to federal food distribution. 
there are certain times of the year when, when bison are harvested. And, um, and if we're buying year round and we're expecting and asking for full truckloads worth of, of bison, and that's just not something that the producers can, can meet, they're not able to participate in these programs. And that is just such a miss. The USDA says it will align purchase timeframes with infrequent animal handling, traditional field harvests, and a nature-based calendar. The agency says it will take lessons learned from the pilot to take the program further in the future. For National Native News, I'm Lee Strubinger. I'm Jill Freitas. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, LLP, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for over 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. Support by Drummond Woodsum a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at dwmlaw.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. There is no story about the history of the buffalo in America without also exploring the animal's relationship with Native Americans. Acclaimed producer Ken Burns takes us on that relationship in the documentary series The American Buffalo, now airing on PBS. Burns incorporates Native talent both behind and in front of the lens. With riveting images, interviews, and historical portrayals, the documentary breathes new life into a story we all know well, but it also finds new hope in the dedicated work by tribes and Native individuals who keep their sacred connection going. We'll hear from Ken Burns today, also producer Juliana Branham, and a Native consultant who worked on the project. They will discuss the series and the historical and enduring importance of Buffalo in America. Join today's conversation with questions or comments for our guests by calling 1-800-996-2848, that's also 1-800-99-NATIVE, or leave a comment on our social media pages, Facebook, Instagram, you know the drill. Speaking with us now from New Hampshire is Ken Burns. He is a documentary filmmaker and the director and executive producer of the PBS series, The American Buffalo. Ken, thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Joining us from Norman, Oklahoma is Juliana Branham. She is a documentary filmmaker and a consultant producer on the American Buffalo. She's also a citizen of the Comanche Nation. Hello, Juliana. Welcome back to Native America Calling. Hi, thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Well, it's wonderful to have you both. And Ken, first off, congratulations to you and everyone else who worked on the American Buffalo documentary. Wonderful effort. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much. I think you're absolutely right. Too often, sometimes it gets 
confused that the film is a singular effort. It's gloriously collaborative. And in the case, I can't imagine us doing it without Juliana and her help from beginning to end. It's been a great joy to get to know her and to benefit from her talents. Uh, the writer, Dayton Duncan, my co-producer, uh, Julie Dunphy, the editor, Craig Mellish, uh, an incredible team of people who worked over the last several years um, under, you know, as you can imagine, pretty difficult circumstances given COVID um, to make this film and to get it out. And we're, we've been so heartened by the response all across the country uh, in, you know, positive reviews and people, the feedback that has been coming in, it's been, it's been exciting. And so we hope that um, members of various tribal nations will uh, reach out to this. It's their story. That's the reason why we told it. We knew that we could do a biography of an animal and you could do it as a nature piece. This is not that. We do understand <laughs> a little bit about the biology of it, but this is, this is history. And you cannot, you know, talk about the buffalo without their 10, 12,000 year relationship with native peoples. And, and that's what the film has done. It squarely centers this story around Native American experience and the trauma that was mentioned, the generational trauma that was mentioned in your news portion is very much a part of the great tragedy of this. The slaughter of the buffalo uh, represents the largest um, killing of wildlife in the history of the world. It's not mm -hmm. just the buffalo. There's beaver. There's passenger pigeons. The passenger pigeon is extinct. There's elk. There's grizzlies. There's wolves. Um, and the buffalo is at, at the heart of that. And it was as Jermaine White, one of our Native American consultants and an, an amazing educator says, it was a twofer. Uh, you not only killed the buffalo for market things, they needed the hides and they left everything else to rot on the, on the, on the prairie. Um, they needed the hides to run the belts of the machines of the industrial uh, revolution. But the other part of the twofer was you killed the Indian. You made the Indian much more pliant and put them on to reservations. And the film is at its heart a tragedy. But as our writer Dayton Duncan says on camera, you go a little bit farther down the trail and there's some hope there. Right, right. I also thought it was interesting how the, the economic motivation evolved, because initially it was for the hides, and then later it was about the skulls and bones that would be ground into fertilizer yeah. and other products. That was fascinating as well, Ken. And I'm glad you mentioned the, you know, the, the thought of a story about an animal, because I think for a lot of folks that just read the title, they might think to themselves, well, this is just another story about a buffalo, about an endangered species, but it's so much more. And Ken, were you aware going in the extent of the human story that would be revealed by this uh, documentary? Almost oh, definitely. And, and not, um, I mean, I say that, but I also want to say, but I wasn't prepared for the emotional power of it. It, it really knocked us all over with it. I mean, we knew that we would, you know, we've done lots of biographies of human beings and to do a biography in quotes of, of an animal seemed important to us because of the relationship with native peoples that native peoples had that used everything of the buffalo from the tail to the snout uh, for their physical sustenance, of course, but also for their moccasins, for their teepees, for their clothing. Uh, you know, a baby is born into a, a swaddled in a buffalo blanket, is shrouded at death in a buffalo blanket, 
and everything else that goes into making tools and, and weapons. And more important than any of that, the buffalo is at the center of so much of the life ways and spiritual life of various native tribes, sometimes at the very, very center, like the Kiowa, for example, is that it, the buffalo is at the very, very center of, of their creation stories and of the mythology. You can't have a Sundance without sac- sacrificing a buffalo for that. I mean, there, the, it, it, people do not appreciate it. it, it the way I'd phrase it, if, what if Hollywood made a series in which all of a sudden all of the commissaries, all of the grocery stores, and all of the churches and the temples and the synagogues disappeared. This is what mm-hmm. happened in the second half of the 19th century on the Great Plains. We took right. away not only the ability to survive this animal that had given sustenance, and we did it in such a, a wasteful way, mm-hmm. leaving the, these carcasses to rot on the Great Plains, but we also deprived Native peoples for, of a connection they'd had for 10,000 years spiritually with this beast. And so it's a, mm-hmm. it's a great tragedy. It's a great crime. And you're right. You know, in the beginning, there's hide and trading for that. Later on, buffalo tongues becomes important. Then the resurgence and in interest in the hides. And when they're dwindling and people are afraid there's not going to be any more buffalo, they start going after the head so they can mount it in their saloon or their trophy room, right? right and then right. they discover that all the bones bleaching are going to be valuable to a nascent chemical industry. And in fact, they make more money. Uh, the bones make more money than, than the hides ever did. I yeah. mean, it's just, you can't yeah. make up a story with this dimension of tragedy. And, and that's why we knew that if we could tell the story of the buffalo, we could, it would be a lens in which you would refract your vision just differently. And instead of paying lip service to Native American voices, you could center and privilege them as we tried to do in this film. Mm-hmm. Now, Ken, the history of the buffalo in America, that has been documented quite extensively. So what types of new information and insights can audiences expect from from this new documentary? I I think wholesale. I I think, you know, people know the general contours. I mean, there's Mm -hmm. not it's not a spoiler alert to say the buffalo did not go extinct. It has been saved. There are now through the uh, intertribal Buffalo Council, more than 80 tribes which have herds. Uh, in various sizes, and and many are also working, and Juliana can speak to this, to rematriate buffalo to tribes farther east that have not have have been separated from their uh, animal for uh, even longer than the Plains Indians have. And so this is this is a hugely important story uh, that we're trying to tell. And I think it's we benefited. We originally thought of doing this 30 years ago. And I'm glad we waited because we benefited from a great deal of scholarship, uh, both Native American and white, that has been able to shed light on this complex story. It is not just a kind of nature film about uh, a mm-hmm. magnificent beast, our national mm-hmm. mammal, the largest land uh, mammal in, in North America. It's about the history of us, both uppercase, the U.S., and lowercase us, meaning all people who call themselves Americans. Mm-hmm. And um, we have to acknowledge, as we try to do in the film, that the original inhabitants are are that, just that. Ken, there are a range of Native people who are interviewed in the film. There are also a number of non-Native people who appear on screen. Was it a challenge to find a meaningful balance of perspectives on this? 
No, because we're not going with any kind of quota system, right? Mm-hmm. We want to tell a good story. And, of course, because we're centering Native American perspective, we're going to have Native American scholars and we're going to have other representatives from tribes from as far north as the Blackfeet and the Salish and Kootenai and Mandan Hidatsa in what is now North Dakota down to Kiowa and Comanche and Cheyenne and others on the central and southern plains and referred to many, many other tribes in the process. But no, I mean, we just wanted to talk to people who knew and um, we weren't checking their credentials at the door. We'd already checked them beforehand. And, <laughs> and then as you're editing, you begin a process of elimination. The cutting room floor isn't filled with bad stuff. It's filled with good stuff. It just didn't fit into the story. So I think there is a really good balance. And then let's remember, and it it has been my style for 45 years, that we not just have a central third-person narrator. We do with a wonderful script written by Dayton Duncan, who I've been collaborating with for 35 years, uh, that's read by Peter Coyote, who's been a, a frequent narrator for us. But we have a chorus of first-person voices reading, you know, the newspaper accounts or the letters of the of the hide hunters, but principally of Native Americans, like, um, you know, uh, read by Tantu Cardinal and uh, John Proudstar and and many other Native American voices that bring mm-hmm. to life old old lady horse and pretty shield and others. That Can, uh, we're going to have to take our short, a short break here in just a few months. But when we come back, though, we're going to go ahead and hear the voice of Tantu Cardinal uh, in the American Buffalo series. And uh, encourage anybody with a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-99-NATIVE. There's a shortage of doctors in the U.S., and the Association of American Medical Colleges estimates it could grow into the six figures in 10 years. A number of Native American health professionals are working to offset the effect the shortage could have on Native people through recruiting and culturally relevant training. We'll hear about it on the next Native America Calling. Support by AARP. If someone asks you to buy gift cards to pay off debt, it's a scam. Imposters will claim your social security number's at risk, or your utility company will stop service due to late payments, or you won the lottery and only need to pay some upfront costs. They'll say the fastest way is to buy gift cards and share the numbers on the back. Anyone who tells you to pay a debt with a gift card is a scammer. More information on gift card scams at aarp.org slash gift cards. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm Sean Spruce. We're talking about the making of the new documentary, The American Buffalo, from filmmaker Ken Burns. It's currently airing on PBS. It tells the story of the animals near extinction and the current efforts to revive buffalo herds. You can join our conversation at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. And a reminder, you can always listen to this show and past shows on your favorite podcast platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Let's go ahead now and hear an excerpt from the series. As Ken mentioned earlier, here is the voice of Tantu Cardinal as the voice of Kiowa woman, Old Lady Horse. Then we hear context from Kiowa writer and Scott Mamaday. The buffalo saw that their day was over. They could protect their people no longer. 
Kyle as we're camped on the north side of Mount Scott. One young woman got up very early in the morning. The dawn mist was still rising from Medicine Creek. And as she looked across the water, peering through the haze, she saw the last buffalo herd appear like a spirit dream. Straight to Mount Scott, the leader of the herd walked. Behind him came the cows and their calves and the few young males who had survived. As the woman watched, the face of the mountain opened. Inside Mount Scott, the world was green and fresh as it had been when she was a small girl. The rivers ran clear, not red. Into this world of beauty, the buffalo walked, never to be seen again. Old Lady Horse. Old Lady Horse. I want to cry when I think of her. I see what she saw, a farewell of tragic significance. It's a shadow within a shadow. This dark mass of animal vitality moving inexorably away from existence. And it has, for every Native American man, woman, and child, a significance that probably is ineffable. Renowned Kiowa writer with New Mexico roots, N. Scott Mamaday. And Ken, can you talk a little bit about N. Scott Mamaday's involvement with the film? What was he able to contribute? Well, almost all of the people who appear on camera in the film are also advisors to the film. So we've known Scott for many, many years and count him a friend. And we worked with him in the mid-90s on our film called The West and got to know him there and have had the privilege of, of being with him on a number of times. He brings a wisdom. He, he gave the title of our first episode. He said that he and all Kiowa have a blood memory of the, this kin, the buffalo. It, it's really, the film is about two different visions of how you see the natural world, one in which you're a part of it and the other in which you're the master of it and, and therefore, by implication, the destroyer of it. Um, and Scott is very, obviously, as a poet, very evocative of, of those things. And is it's a beautiful interview that he gave us. And then he advised us as we, at various junctures in the production, as he's done in other cases. And his contribution is immeasurable. Mm-hmm. Well, Ken, thanks again uh, for leading us off today in our conversation. I want to bring Juliana into the dialogue now, Juliana Branham, documentary filmmaker and a consultant producer on The American Buffalo. Juliana, tell us, when did you first become involved with this project? I became involved, um, gosh, a few years ago. Um, uh, Julie Dumphy, the, um, one of the producers at Florentine Films, reached out. She uh, had learned of me um, through my previous work, um, uh, documentary work on PBS. And also learned that um, I was a descendant of Kwana Parker, who is featured uh, pretty heavily in, in the series. So she reached out and we just started the conversation and dialogue. And um, I was reading some of the first drafts of the script and, and 
you know, really saw how um, how well this was being um, handled. The, the you know the native perspective um, was was being considered, and so I came on, and um, you know, I did a lot of a lot of uh, different things, including our, a lot of archival research, um, uh, working with um, our native interview subjects. And our native talent um, for the voiceovers that you that you just listened to, um, and um, and we would all get together every few weeks. Um, me being in Oklahoma and everybody else being in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. I would zoom in and um, you know do um, our big kind of uh, you know in the trenches work as as they say, and um, and was just able to really kind of hone in on on the details and the nuances of the story. So. It's kind of in from the from the beginning to the to the end, and here we are. We're so proud of, of what we've accomplished, and I hope I hope everybody uh, is able to see it and, and and feel the same. Absolutely. Now, Juliana, I imagine you're approached quite often with people who have exciting projects, interesting documentaries, and TV shows. And what was it that gave you confidence that that this is a story that would be told right, that the the native input would be there, that you would have a meaningful role in really helping to shape the dialogue and the narrative? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question because, you know, I did get approached a lot um, by filmmakers kind of looking to have somebody kind of on just for, um, you know, namesake or for, you know, just to kind of have a backup, you know, right? Like to say, oh, well, look, I've got a, a native person on here. But, um, and so, you know, you really have to go into those uh, conversations um, with a lot of questions and kind of do your due diligence to determine, like, is this um, story going to be handled properly? And, you know, of course, I've, you know, as a documentary filmmaker, I've been a student of Ken's work my whole life and um, knew that, you know, certainly they would get all the factual information correct. Um, you know, the whole team is incredibly detailed and just uh, uh so so intelligent about um, the approach to the story, but I wanted to make sure that you know um, with the right people were being were telling the story, sharing the story, and that the native lens was um, you know was was open and uh, diverse. And you know quickly as I started kind of going through the list of who was lined up for interviews, it was it was apparent to me that you know, obviously they've done their homework. So <laughs> so it was kind of a no brainer, right? Um, and, you know, Ken is, you know, a master filmmaker for a reason. Um, and so, you know, he does take into consideration the whole team, in fact, really looks at ways to, um, uh, you know, get into the nuances of it. And um, so, yeah, it was, uh, it, was, it was great, and I signed on, and, and it was just been a really wonderful relationship for me. All right. Let's go ahead and take our first caller of the day, Chanupa. He's listening on Keeley up in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Hello, Chanupa. Thank you for calling in. Hey, thank you for having me on the show, uh, Sean. To to the people that are creating this documentary, let you say, oh, chichakakte. What I said in my language to the people producing and making this movie, listen to the four-legged, listen to the buffalo, 
they still speak our Lakota language. People are always saying that because most of their, you know, uh, way that they, they've been mistreated and abused and they almost driven them into extinction. That's a cultural genocide when you exterminate animals. This is what the system did. So when you make this documentary, don't forget there's one out there called Red Cry, and they talk extraordinary about the buffalo. And thank you guys for doing something, but really take a look at what genocide almost did to my people, and that's the Tatanko Oyate. Thank you, Sean, for having me come on. Ha-ho. Well, thank you, Chanupa. We can always count on Chanupa with uh, beautiful, wise words in the Lakota language to be shared here on our show. And and Julian, I'd like you to to respond. Chanupa just mentions another documentary, and I know you also have created a documentary. It's called titled Homecoming. It premieres tomorrow on the 18th, and it kind of aligns with the American Buffalo Project. So there's a lot of other information there's other movies documentaries tell us a little bit more about homecoming sure yeah uh homecoming um well the idea was uh, uh was presented to me from uh ken and julie and dayton and asked if i'd be interested in in directing a short film as a companion piece to the american buffalo um and of course i was thrilled to do so and i was looking into to what we might uh, dive into and um, came across the work of Jason Baldas and um, uh, his work with the Intertribal Buffalo Council, but also with his work on his own uh, Eastern Shoshone tribal herd. Um, and, you know, what really struck me about him was that he would talk a lot about um, uh, sort of this new paradigm, you know, so uh, Native people and our relationship to the buffalo uh, was one of um, uh, protection and um, and now these days we are working to you know to continue that. Uh, and he sees I think how I see him when he's talking about this new paradigm is that you know we have to now uh, put on our suit and go to Washington D.C. and uh, talk with the people in power to um, help us you know to to. Um, uh, uh, you know, restore this animal uh, into our own tribal herds and and and, and allow that the, the meat to become into the you know to come to the, the tribe schools and you know there's a whole process as uh, there was a, you know your story at the top of the uh, at the top of the uh, hour here that about all of that uh, you know sort of red tape that has to happen to 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 be able to just feed our own children uh, buffalo in public schools is like a whole process and he has to really kind of hustle you know and he has to have this. He has to be the face of uh, his, not just his tribe, but other tribes um, to, to um, you know, make movement in this effort. And so, so we follow him and um, we pick up a herd in uh, the city of Denver, uh, donates their animals every year to uh, tribes in the region. And we picked them up in, in um, Denver and drove it out to uh, the Wind River Indian Reservation and um, released them there. Uh, to to build up uh, their herd there, and then and then we follow um, uh, a small herd going back to the Menominee tribe. For the first time in almost 200 years, the Menominee were getting their very first animals. They had finally um, uh, raised uh, enough money to to purchase lands and build fences and, and create that infrastructure for them. Um, as an organization called Medicine Fish. Um, 
who uh, who works to, to do that and works to empower youth. And so uh, we were there to witness their first animals coming off the trailer um, in the Nominee country. And it was just such a beautiful, emotional uh, moment in history. So, um, so that's, that, that's essentially what the film is. It's 18 minutes and will be streaming tomorrow on PBS.org, and it's called Homecoming. Thank you, Juliana. We're going to take another call now. Harriet in Albuquerque, New Mexico, listening on KUNM. How are you doing, Harriet? Thanks for calling. Good. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to offer listeners a little perspective on the New Mexico herds. My husband, Carl Sosi, was a founding member of the Intertribal Bison Cooperative, which is now the Intertribal Buffalo Council. And the tribe found out that there was a herd at Fort Wingate that the Army was in control of, and they were going to offer what is called a canned hunt. And for listeners who aren't uh, familiar with that, they were issuing $10,000. He paid them $10,000. You got to come and kill a buffalo. And the buffalo were in a corral. I mean, it wasn't even a sporting event. They were sitting ducks, only okay. a, a lot heavier. I'm sorry, so Harriet, he, really quickly. And, what what was the time frame here with this canned hunt at Fort Wingate? What years are we talking about? Uh, it's probably about 15 years ago. Oh, recently. They okay. got, yeah, they uh, collaborated with another organization, Animal Protection of New Mexico, and they went to court and got a federal injunction against the hunt. And the judge then distributed the buffalo to the tribes here in New Mexico. Wow. Fascinating story. Uh, interesting. Really, really interesting. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and take another call now. We've got uh, Rosalind. Or first of all, I'm going to go ahead and just introduce another guest. I'm sorry. Uh, Rosalind Lapeer, Dr. Rosalind Lapeer. She's joining us from Champaign, Illinois. And she is a professor of history at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. She's also an enrolled member of the Blackfeet Tribe of Montana. And she's Métis as well. Rosalind, you've been on our show before. Welcome back. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, Rosalind. Great to have you. And uh, well, tell us, what are your key takeaways from the American Buffalo documentary? Well, first of all, I think it is, um, you know, a really great story. Uh, and I should, before I say that, it's a great story of American history. But it's also really, you know, it begins as a really tragic story of American history um, that becomes a great story. Um, and I think it's something that um, people will find really fascinating and really interesting. Um, last night I sat with, sat with a group of friends um, as we watched it live um, on TV uh, and heard from friends around the U.S. And some people um, had to stop watching because it was such a tragic story. They needed to sort of slow down and kind of absorb what they learned before they watched some more, whereas others were just, um, kind of blown away um, by the history that they were learning that they had not heard before, um, that they were not aware of, um, and were able to really uh, think about it, this um, story of bison both from the indigenous perspective but also from kind of the U.S. history perspective in a different way. Um, so I think it's a really sort of, like I said, it's a great story of American history, um, but it is both tragic um, and um, kind of has... Um, you know, a, a, a happy ending um, at the end. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that are really, really powerful photos, uh, old photos and images uh, from the buffalo hunts and some of these uh, massacres that occurred there, uh, all parts of the country. It was really interesting to learn just how, at one point, uh, the buffalo really did roam across the entire North American continent. So we're going to go ahead now and take another short break. When we come back, we're going to talk more with Rosalind about her insights and uh, what she took away from the American Buffalo documentary. And we're also going to take another caller and uh, we're just going to explore a little bit more detail, uh, just the significance of this documentary. And of course, talk more about the Buffalo, the Buffalo restoration projects and what's happening in uh, native communities now with regard to Buffalo projects. So phone lines, they are open. Our producers are standing by. We're waiting for your call. 1-800-996-2848. That's our number. What are you waiting for? 1-800-996-2848. Support by Penguin Random House, publisher of Contenders by Tracy Sorrell, illustrated by Aragon Starr, the story of John Mayers and Charles Bender, the first two native pro baseball players to face off in a World Series. This and other stories at prh.com slash stories of the land. Support by Vision Maker Media, envisioning a world changed and healed by understanding Native stories and the public conversations they generate. 45 plus years of Native stories and Indigenous knowledge through film and media can be found at visionmakermedia.org. Listening to Native America Calling. Still time to join this conversation about a new Ken Burns documentary titled The American Buffalo. The second part of the documentary premieres tonight on PBS will also be available to stream on pbs.org and the PBS app. Join us with a comment or question by calling 1-800-996-2848. And right now we have Dr. Rosalind Lapierre on the line. She's a professor, professor of history at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign. And Rosalind, another interesting takeaway that uh, our producers took from, from watching the film is there's a statement there that that the history of the buffalo restoration actions worked against the interests of native people in, in many ways and is that your assessment as well um i don't think so over time um obviously we're at a point now um in uh, the united states where indigenous people are really taking the lead um, in terms of restoring bison to the land and landscape, and then also taking the lead um, in terms of restoring habitat um, that is absolutely necessary for uh, bison to live on. So I think over time, you know, where we are today is, you know, indigenous people really are the ones that are leading this process. Um, and as Juliana had just mentioned with the film, the short film that she did, Homecoming, um, that uh, they highlight a couple of um, great stories, including the story of the Menominee, um, mm -hmm. where uh, you know bison are being restored to the land in places where have where they haven't seen bison for more than two hundred years. Okay, I'm going to get Ken's perspective on this uh, because Ken, what I thought was interesting is, you know, some of these early proponents uh, for buffalo restoration, like Teddy Roosevelt, I mean, their motivation was let's keep these herds going so we can hunt them more, right? I thought that was interesting. And I don't know if that really aligns with traditionally what the Native perspective is. What's your thought, Ken? Well, I think we've got to understand now that we're in a second or third wave of environmental movements that the original conservation movement began among hunters 
who were seeing that the objects of their hunt were about to go extinct and wanted to be able to continue to hunt them. And what they come up with is essentially a version of what Native peoples had been doing for thousands of years, which is how do you sustainably hunt an animal and at the same time preserve them. The Native peoples never took more than they needed. And uh, it's only the, the sort of influence of the commodification of the buffalo hide that made it such uh, an imperiled species. I'd also like to say with the historical context that Roz addressed, you know, it is true that Native people are leading, but I think the question that you asked was born of an important thing, that Native people gave up their homelands, were forced onto mm -hmm. reservations, and then often parts of their original homeland um, through the Dawes Allotment Act or even the positive creation of, of, of wildlife refuges and preserves were on originally the homelands of the natives. And you can think of the first wildlife refuge that Teddy Roosevelt created uh, in the Wichita Mountains in what is now Oklahoma. Um, that was on Kiowa land. And so they were no longer living there and they are still no longer living there. So I think that originally um, a good deal of the setting aside did come at the expense of Native people and their land. And obviously the Dawes Allotment Act um, was, you know, the, the real, real crime in terms mm -hmm. of taking even what meager portions of land had been set aside as reservations and then, uh, you know, giving individual uh, families, you know, acreage for farming and for ranching and then is opening right. the rest up for white settlement. This is where, you know, the story that our film goes into and your very first caller, you know, this film is already done, so we won't be able to seek out the people that he specifically said, but we definitely get into the genocide. And while it may have not been written policy of the United States, it was certainly articulated from the top on down and by the military and by corporations and by individuals that if you kill the buffalo for this market reason you were also controlling. Even Theodore Roosevelt himself before he was president, and I'm paraphrasing, says it's, I suppose, sad that the buffalo is going to go, probably going to go extinct, but it's going to go a long way to help us with our Indian problem and yeah. the advancement of white civilization. He comes yeah. right out and just says it. And so a lot of this is just out and out nationalism and, and white supremacy and racism, and we call it what it is in the film. Let's go ahead and take another caller. Eric listening on station KIYE in Lapway, Idaho. Eric, you're on the air. Hi, Pat Mayway. I'm a Luke next Grizzly Bear in line. I appreciate the call and time. Sean, I appreciate the topic today. And I too watched it last night and was in awe of, of what it was depicting. And, and I truly believe in the way they conveyed it was heart-wrenching and heartfelt at the same time and but i wanted to say just about the nest first tribe you know we've been a leader in buffalo management after reasserting our treaty reserved rights to hunt buffalo and national forest lands in the greater yellowstone area in 2006 we we did it through a tribal youth and a subsistence hunt that year and over time it's grown and um we've joined the interagency bison management uh plan as a voting member in 2009 and over the past 14 years the tribe has participated in a gradual shift in buffalo management in the greater Yellowstone area. There's now more tolerance for larger buffalo herds inside the park and more tolerance for buffalo outside the park. 
Mm-hmm. And in 2022, the Yellowstone buffalo population increased to over 6,000 animals, the largest number in decades. Okay. And the increased population also. Um, and I just wanted to say that because today, after years without meaningful access to buffalo, the Nimipu are reconnecting with buffalo in the greater Yellowstone area, reasserting our sacred relationship with buffalo and exercising our treaty reserved right to hunt buffalo, secured by our ancestors and promised by the United States. And I just wanted to say that because it was one of our most successful buffalo hunts this year and where over a century and grandparents, parents, and children participated in. So this hunt was ensured that the tribe will have plentiful access to traditional and nutritious food stores for the Nimikun families for ceremonies and community gatherings, you know, for generations to come. And I just wanted to say that because I appreciate uh, what Ken's doing at the film and those that are participating with it and that, you know, there are, Outside of just the um, inter- intertribal bison council, there's the, those you know, treaty reserved right tribes that are wanting to still maintain that uh, secured connection through hunting and harvesting buffalo over in that area. As Chief Looking Glass had it in our treaty of 1855, that he will be able to co hunt buffalo. And so we um, pay reverence to those that language within our treaty to allow us to do that. So thank you very much this morning for allowing me to say that. And I appreciate what you guys are all doing. Kachiaoya. Well, Eric, we appreciate you calling in from Lapway, Idaho, and uh, the Nimipu, as well as so many other tribes that are involved with Buffalo Projects. And uh, Rosalind, I want to get your take on that, because um, how big an impact do you think the American Buffalo documentary will have to just um, reaffirm the conviction and, and the passion that so many tribes that are currently involved with Buffalo Projects have and also inspire other tribes and other native communities to undertake buffalo projects what's your thought oh i think this uh this documentary is going to have a huge impact on people's interest in um, continuing to strengthen um, the bison herds that currently exist and then also um, to begin working um, with tribes uh, to strengthen those herds i think it's really going to generate um, interest uh, in our younger generations who are interested in, um, uh, again, strengthening the herds that currently exist or even creating new herds uh, within historic uh, tribal communities where bison was very much part of their um, community um, histories. Um, I think, what, and especially um, our connection to religion and religious practice, I think that this is something that we heard um, throughout uh, last night in the, in the documentary part one, and you'll hear again in part two, um, from pretty much every single like indigenous person who um, served as an interviewee um, and a consultant, that almost everybody brought up that connection um, between religion um, and their own tribal community and the importance of bison. And so I think um, one of the things that we saw throughout kind of the 19th and 20th century as bison declined and were nearly extinct um, was this continuation of bison still being at the center of people's um, religion. Uh, we heard that really forcefully from folks like Marsha Pablo um, in the film um, who talked about how, you know, that, that bison were still part of their prayers uh, even as um, the bison were in decline. And so I think that this is something that is not only going to sort of um, revitalize uh, our connection to bison, but I think in many communities is really going to revitalize and there's be a resurgence 
of um, indigenous um, spirituality and religion and religious practice centered around bison. Mm-hmm. Rosalind, I, I just have to comment um, because it, you repeatedly will use the word bison. And I know that, that buffalo is actually a misnomer, right? Um, the American, we think of as the American buffalo is actually the bison. But so, so why the name American buffalo? And do you think that, that as a country, we're ever going to get away from that, that moniker buffalo and start using the, the correct term bison in the future? So, I mean, I think I use the word bison all the time because I'm a, I'm a professor and I teach. Uh-huh. And so um, I just, I've over, over time, I've just gotten used to use the, uh, the scientific name, which is bison, bison. Um, but the common name, of course, is the American buffalo, um, which is why it's the name of the film. And most people in the United States um, still use the name, you know, buffalo or American buffalo. And that'll continue to be, you know, the common name, at least here. So, um, so yeah, so I think it's both are interchangeable and both are interchangeable in the film as well. Um, I think I just, again, over time, I've just grown more comfortable saying bison because, you know, I <laughs> used it in the classroom. <laughs> right, right. Juliana, back to you. Uh, are we seeing more autonomy for tribes to restore, uh, whether you call them buffalo or bison herds, either one? What's your thought? I mean, we are. There's so much movement, um, especially with the Intertribal Buffalo Council. I mean, they've got over 80 uh, member tribes around the country. I think there's something about, uh, gosh, Rosalind, correct me if I'm wrong, about 300,000 or uh, uh, buffalo um, herds, uh, or not herds, but, but actual buffalo. But um, uh, And then just earlier this spring, um, uh, our Interior Secretary, Deb Holland, um, committed $25 million for tribal buffalo restoration. So there's obviously a growing movement. You've been seeing it and reading about it and hearing about it all over the news lately. So there's certainly an, uh, an uptick in the interest um, of that. And also, you know, really for reasons of, you know, for biodiversity and environmental reasons. And so I think as we, you know, um, move forward with tribal um, uh, nations taking, you know, sort of the front seat and the driver's seat, We'll we'll start to hopefully see some big changes in terms of um, our biodiversity habitat, and you know maybe um, clearing a path um, to uh, you know for for an alternative meat um, from cattle. Um, it is certainly much better for the climate. Um, we're all suffering the effects of climate change, so you know for Native people to have that conversation and be sort of front and center in that conversation is vitally important. You know, as you say, we've had this relationship with the buffalo for um, 10, 12,000 years, if not more. And, um, you know, we obviously know it better than anyone. So, so yeah, lots of movement, um, lots of change. And, you know, I hope the film uh, really, uh, you know, helps push that along as well. I think, you know, as Robin was saying, um, I've just been getting flooded with text messages and phone calls about uh, how moved they were by the first episode and how, tragic and i think when people feel that visceral kind of you know experience that it drives them to to want to make changes and so i really hope that's the takeaway i really hope people can take away from this film is understanding the native perspective and that relationship and why it's so important uh, for us to continue this work in buffalo conservation Thanks, Juliana. And Ken, I want to go back to you. We've got a couple of minutes before we have to wrap up. And I think that today in 2023, for most Americans, 
the only time they'll ever see a buffalo probably is in some type of a penned pasture. But in this documentary, there are so many riveting images of buffalo, and, and they're out there grazing on the plains. They're out there. They're running. They're, they're in herds. And, and what do you want people to, to really understand and take away from seeing these types of images, seeing buffalo today thriving? Well, that's a wonderful question. You know, as storytellers, we don't come in with our thumb on the scale in any way. Obviously, we are thrilled that the buffalo has been brought back from extinction. We are privileged to be able to tell the story of the central role of Native peoples in the story of the buffalo. We are ashamed, some of us, by our own people's attempts to eradicate it in the wasteful way in which they do it did it. But we're now at a moment where we sort of look at the two episodes of our film as the first two acts of a three-act play. And the third act is going to be written by every one of us, depending on our will to not just preserve the buffalo, it is saved from extinction for now, but do we have the will, political and otherwise, to create large spaces, ecosystems, habitats, that would permit the buffalo to roam wild and free. And that, I think, is sort of, at the end of the film, the wish. And so if I could take, ask the audience to take anything away, is not just to experience, as we did, again, the heartbreaking tragedy and the hope-filled uplift at the end, but what are we going to do now? How do we help the 80 tribes and more that will have buffalo herds? How do we help the various NGOs like American Prairie and World Wildlife Fund and the conservation groups to create the large uh, ecosystems necessary that the buffalo will roam wild and free? And we can take the essentially silent Great Plains and turn it back into the American Serengeti that it once was filled with lots of animals and plants. We're going to have to go ahead and wrap up the show now. The American Buffalo, it is showing now on PBS, airing now, PBS. Uh, thank you to our guests today, Ken Burns, Juliana Branham, and Dr. Rosalind Lapeer for their insights and for their wisdom. Join us here on NAC again tomorrow as we take a look at the push to recruit and train Native medical professionals. Until then, I'm your host, Sean Spruce. Have a great rest of your day. Lakota made indigenous first medicines and eco-friendly personal care products are small batch prepared in the Lakota traditions using sustainably harvested natural and organic ingredients and all can be found at lakotamade.com who support this show. Fry bread, that's the message. Support by Val's Fry Bread, providing her famous fry bread mixes and other products in wholesale and retail quantities at valsfrybread.com. Fry bread that will take you home, available wherever you live. Ah, Protect your health and wellness. Help your family and community stay healthy by making sure you and your loved ones are up to date on vaccines. RSV, seasonal flu, and COVID-19 booster vaccines are available now. For more information on vaccines, contact your Indian health care provider or visit vaccines.gov. A message from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services.
Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davids. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.